Welcome to Stoveside Chat. The chef is ready for your kitchen tour. Please come this way. Obviously, here with uh, Chef uh, Francisco Migoya, and uh, you know one of the uh, I'm probably the, the writer for Waterman's Bread, and uh, a lot of other uh, great accomplishments that you've accomplished, uh, I guess, in your career. So I guess we can start with uh, introducing yourself to our viewers first. Yeah. So my name is Francisco Migoya. I am the head chef at Marinus Cuisine uh, in Seattle, uh, Washington, and basically I'm in charge of uh, developing all the uh, recipes and content for the books that we publish. Our most recent published book was Marnus Bread, as you mentioned, and we have a book coming out next year titled Marnus Pizza, which we've been working on for the last almost four years now. Um, so it's oh. uh, we're winding that project down, and we're starting to work on one that I'm uh, very excited about, which is the pastry. It's a it's going to be a, a, oh. a book on pastry. We don't. We haven't outlined it yet, but it's going to it's going to take a few years. So nobody should hold their breath yet that <laughs> it's coming out. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds very very exciting. Obviously, you have a background in a lot of pastry arts, and that's where uh, you know your Instagram and uh, you share a lot of your uh, work as well. So that's very exciting. Yeah, that's basically so, my. I mean, I'm a pastry chef. That's I will always be a pastry chef. So right. So let's start in the beginning, I guess, uh, early on in your life. Uh, obviously, I uh, grew up in Mexico City right. uh, with a very diverse family background. Uh, grew up with lots, lots of great food there, obviously, uh, Mexican food and also from your family, the Italian side and sort of the American influence as well. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, how did that influence your culinary preference and your approach as well? Yes. So, uh, as you mentioned, I was born in Mexico City. Uh, my father is from Spain. Um, and my mother is, she's American, Italian American. And so at home we had many influences from like all these diverse cultures. Um, and so basically it's, it was like a window into the world of food where there was just a lot of, um, it wasn't like just one type of food that we ate every day. It was, it was very varied. Uh, it was, there was a lot of variety. I mean, these, these cuisines are very varied in and of themselves. Um, and so that did have a, a tremendous influence just on that alone. Um, and it helps if you have parents who really like love food, right? Because it's, uh, I mean, I, I can, you can have that background, but if there isn't like a, like an appreciation for food and good food, it doesn't matter. Right. So, um, I think I owe a lot to them for, for having that sort of like appreciation for, uh, I mean, and good food doesn't always mean expensive, fancy ingredients. I mean, good food is it's a good taco, you know, it's good spaghetti, it's good, you name it. And so mm -hmm. um, there's many there's many options within the realm of, of non-fancy foods that are fantastic, right? <laughs> um, right. But uh, to be honest, it wasn't, I, I didn't start thinking about pastry as an actual career until I moved to New York City um, in 1998. Uh, I moved there to work in restaurants because at least at that moment, New York City was very important gastronomically. I will tell mm -hmm. you, like, I, I think currently New York City, it's become a meat and potatoes town. I mean, there's, there, it's really good meat and really good potatoes, but the restaurants are just 
there, it's not the most exciting city uh, for restaurants like it used to be. Um, that might not sit well with very many people, but it's the truth. I mean, it's the right. truth because there's so many restaurants that have tried to be uh, relevant and have tried to be, you know, avant-garde and have tried to like basically break the rules and they don't last more than a year, you know, mm -hmm. where what lasts a long time in that city is steakhouses and just like regular American cuisine, right? So right. that's why I had initially moved because there was a lot of exciting things happening there. Uh, but when I moved there and I started a job working in a restaurant, it was an absolutely awful experience for me um, that made me start looking for options. And interestingly, the, the one job opening that I had looked for um, that I, when I was reading the, you know, the, the help wanted section, because that's how you used to find jobs, buying, buying the newspaper, right? <laughs> uh, right, right. It, there was a position open for a uh, pastry cook at a restaurant uh, that still exists called the River Cafe. And since then, I, I went, I, I, I worked for a day, they hired me, and since then I've been doing pastry. So that's, that's basically the, the origin of, of why and how I started with pastry. Right, right. And so uh, you were, I, I found out that you were initially planning on being, attending art, art school and still paints, obviously, in addition to yeah. creating art that way. So, um, you know, anything particular in terms of artists that you like a lot and how does that, again, uh, sort of made your, made your food in a certain way, does it, do you find? Yeah, I think uh, everything, I, I, yes, I was going to go to art school before I went to cooking school and mostly because it's something that I had been very passionate about since I was a young kid. Um, the problem with going to art school is that even if you're very talented, sometimes it means that you're, you're going to have to have a second job or, or do something else while your career takes off, if it ever takes off. And so I, I was really encouraged by my parents to do something uh, that would actually produce a paycheck and then if I wanted to do art later I could do art later and so uh, it seemed like cooking was a good compromise with that um, I won't I don't think that let me put it this way I think that there's a lot of artistic inspiration behind some food there's a there's maybe like how you're gonna plate it how you're gonna put it together but I wouldn't say that food is art um, in and of itself and simply because you know there in in cooking and in pastry there's rules meaning you have to if you want to make a creme anglaise you can't just do it however you want to do it there has to be a proportion of ingredients and it has to be done a certain way in order mm -hmm. to obtain that result right with, of course. with art there's no rules i mean they're really i mean you can be like the most technical oil painting artists and then there could be people that just smear paint on the canvas and they're both artists and they're both producing art. And so that's, mm -hmm. that is what I think is great about art is that there are no rules and that anybody could be an artist. Right. Um, but like with cooking, you, you do have to respect certain things at the end of the day, people are going to eat what you're making. Um, and so it has to be wholesome in that way. It has to be something that is, is identifiable as something that can be eaten safely. Right. So um, there's 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 obviously room for experimentation with food, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if, if I also think about art, 
art is a, you make a single painting as an artist. When you work mm -hmm. in a kitchen, you have to do the same dish hundreds of times, right? And so of course. Uh, that yeah. sort of replication, uh, to me, kind of, it, it's, I don't, I think it takes away from it being able to be call it art at that point. Uh, it's, it's, you're, you're replicating something, right? So, um, so from that respect, it's, it's there. I, that's how I make the distinction between food and art, right? But I do, I do every, pretty much everything I approach as far as food goes does have an artistic inspiration behind it. It does have that sort of, um, spirit of you know it has to be pleasing to the eye you know i mean for me and again some people might disagree with that and that's fine but for me personally i think that it has to be something that is delicious but also beautiful to look at and obviously beauty is in the eye of the beholder it's not every people every person have a different interpretation of what that is um but i i need to feel that what i'm putting forward is something that is also going to be beautiful to look at right and so uh, and also because you know not every everybody who knows you is going to eat your food right i mean right now what we have is social media and so like if i put a, mm -hmm. a, a slop uh, in a bowl and i take a picture of it and I put it on instagram what i mean it could be delicious but i mean who who would know and, right no one looks at that right and if you think of you know how many chefs are famous that are famous because of what we see them do. We may never taste their food, but we hold them in high regard, right? Green Michelin restaurants that few people can afford or restaurants that have 12 seats in the middle of, you know, Sweden that you have to get, you know, like it, these are, yeah. these are very specific places, but yet the chefs have recognition because they have books, they have, uh, you know, social media accounts. And so it's, it's, it, it's, it's food that is beautiful to look at, right? Um, right. So I think that that matters, and, and it matters to me. So I do continue. I do have, you know, when I get home, every day I'm painting, every day. Um, and I, I make it a point to spend at least one hour in my studio every day painting. And whether something good comes out or not, it doesn't matter tremendously. You know, I mean, I think that the most important thing is to create, and, and it's... I have a need to create. Um, and since I don't work in a restaurant, I'm not basically creating every day. I'm, I'm, my, the process here takes years. In a restaurant, it's immediate, or a bakery, a pastry shop. It's like you're producing, people are buying it. It's, it has an audience where I don't, my audience has to wait years for a book to come out, right? So, right. Um, right. and with, with art, there's more of an immediacy, right? I mean, there, there's, there's, you can, it's tangible. You have a, you have something to show for your day, you know, something that you created, some a physical thing that you made. So, yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to my friend about, uh, I guess, art and food, uh, just in in general. Uh, to your point, and we're just saying that it seems like, and it, it might not be something that chefs are aspiring to do, but it just seems like the presentation uh, of food itself is kind of stagnant if you will i mean there's the the vertical stuff for you know obviously the last uh, i guess 10 15 years or so it's the you know funny enough it's the uh, modernist slash uh sort of um how do you call it like uh modernist approach mm -hmm. so using chemicals and things like that so uh you know we're just talking about how would you 
change the way food looks, you know, in terms of, you know, from a, from a more artistic standpoint, right? So, yeah. Well, the thing too is that, you know, while what you're describing is like very precious tweezer food, um, mm-hmm. there's beauty in a beautiful roast, right? I mean, there's, or, or just a steak. I mean, those things can be in and of themselves beautiful to look at, even if they're raw and uncooked, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it has to do also with how it's shown, right? And that, that is okay. whether you're doing something as simple as just showing somebody a steak, when there's good lighting and a good camera, I mean, that's, that is really going to tell the story where if you t- just take out your crappy phone and you take a picture and it's like in the restaurant lighting, it doesn't look very good. So it's like, what are you showing me? So I think a lot of it has to do with presentation, right? I mean, context is such an important part of it, whether... Because you can have the most beautiful plate, but it's not—it's not, it's not mm-hmm. well shot. It's not presented beautifully in a, in a with good light. It, the mess is going to get completely lost. So I, I think a lot of it has to do, like I said, with how it's shown and how it's presented. Fair enough. Yeah. Obviously, with uh, like you said, especially with Instagram and things like that, it's very visual, right? So you see it however it's presented, and you know, in a way that it makes sense to you and also the viewer. Right. Right. And you know, like. If I'm thinking, you know, I've had to really, writing our, our bread book, uh, you know, big thing with bread is that bread is different shades of brown, right? I mean, there's, there are very few opportunities of, of shooting it differently, right? I mean, we had, uh, I think we have 1,500 recipes in our book. And how do you present, you know, every bread in a, in a way that is beautiful, right? And so... That's where, you know, the, the, the quality of the image matters and, and, you know, how you light it and how you do all these things so that while it, it's, it is different shades of bread, of brown, I'm sorry, then you, you can get, you can obtain beautiful images out of it, right? And it's still bread at the end of the day. It's, it's, it's as humble as it gets. But, right. but if, it, if you give it that, like, that treatment, it's going to shine, right? Um, pizza was a little bit easier and there's things about pizza that are beautiful, whether it's the pizza itself or how you bake it in a wood-fired oven. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot that that comes from that you can make beautifully with pizza, right? And so it was a little bit easier. Um, but you know, I, th- I think that having the ability to to just show those things beautifully, I think that matters, and I think that that is what has helped make many chefs successful is that they they understand that they understand how to show their food you know Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it creates expectation and it creates like i don't know i've never had a a cronut for example but i'm Mm -hmm. i'm I'm sure it's pretty good because of so many people posting it uh you know so many people talking about it and you know it's it's there might be some marketing there there might be some like mass hysteria occurring with it but it's not going to be bad right i mean it's not Right. You know, so so it does help get your message out, I think. Sure. And so that's actually an interesting point you made is, uh, you know, obviously you worked in professional kitchens and, and uh, in a restaurant setting. So how did you actually end up working with Modernist Cuisine, you know, after those wonderful stints? Um, and also, obviously, with the Culinary Institute in America. Yeah, so I, before I started working at the Culinary Institute of America, I was a pastry chef um, at the French Laundry. California and so my daughter was born and like three months after she was born I hadn't realized 
I hadn't, I realized I hadn't really seen her um, because I was working 16, 18 hours a day. And when I got home, which is at night, she was sleeping. And so there was a point where I thought, you know, I'm, I'm making food for people that I will never know. Just a bunch of rich people that I couldn't care any less about. Um, and yet I'm missing out on the first, you know, months of my daughter's life. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I, there's no job that is worth that. And so I started looking for a, an alternative where I could still continue to, to produce food or get, have my hands in it, but have a better quality of life. Because I don't know how many chefs you've spoken to, but most of them will tell you, you can't have both. You can't have a family and a restaurant life. It's just not, right. you, you, you can't do both well. You'll do one well and compromise the other one, period. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that is what I think is, is very dysfunctional about the restaurant industry is that you have to pick, right? Um, but obviously for me, it was clear that I wanted to pick something where I was going to be able to be in my daughter's life. And so the opportunity to teach at the Culinary Institute of America came to be. Um, it was a bit of a godsend because between, I mean, it was, it was complicated because we were in California and we had to move to New York. Um, and so at that point, you know, with a little baby and moving across country, it was, it was challenging, Stressful. Um, but working at the CIA was a fantastic experience because I, I could continue to teach, continue to learn, um, mm -hmm. have a normal life. And there was a point though, after, you know, eight years of that, that I started to get, um, I, I, I think I had reached the end of my desire to be a teacher. Um, and so I opened a chocolate shop, um, also basically while I was working at the CIA. So basically oh, wow. in the morning I would go to, um, work and then I would leave at two o'clock and I would go straight to my chocolate shop. Uh, it was called Hudson chocolates. Um, and so the idea was that eventually that shop would become its, you know, it would it would free me financially to be able to leave my job at the CIA. And it was a lot of work. I mean, this is 20 hour days, you know, and I, I was, I was getting close to, you know, turning 40 and it's just, it's not the same anymore when you're 40 than when you're 20 or 30, you can't, can't work 20 hour days. Um, so for like six months, I was like a zombie. Like I was, I, I would get two or three hours of sleep a day. I was just working all day long. Um, right. And speaking of godsends, there was a one day I was in my deep in chocolate production. I got a phone call from a recruiter from Marnus Cuisine. And I didn't pick mm, up okay. because I had my hands full, so to speak. <laughs> um, but the message was, hi, I'm calling from Marnus Cuisine. I don't know if you've heard of us. And I'm like, who hasn't heard of Marnus Cuisine? Um, mm. And so that, you know, between getting that phone call, moving to Seattle and starting a job, it took about six months, but it was, it's, it's professionally, I think it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me, if not the best, because, okay. well, it allowed me to not have to open my chocolate shop. I closed it um, with, I, we didn't lose actually. We, we, when we closed, we were actually making money off of it. Um, so we didn't lose money on that, but also I could leave my, teaching job and started something completely new. Um, and so that was six and a half, it's going to be seven years in January. Um, 
and just this job has been incredible. Uh, for me, it's just been, there is, I can't imagine working anywhere else. Um, I mean, it, it's Nathan Mirabel, who's my boss. He's like, he's just an amazing, brilliant person. Um, and he just provides everything that we need to, to write these books, uh, be, you know, guidance, of course, and, uh, you know, input and so forth. But also we have a beautiful kitchen. We have all the equipment you can imagine. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I almost feel guilty sometimes I have this job, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's definitely been a fantastic opportunity and we're going to hopefully write many more books after this. So. Yeah, that's uh, all the books are pretty much masterpiece by this point. So certainly we all look forward to uh, more coming from you guys. So, you know, that's a uh, next question actually regarding the modernist book series is that obviously they're well known for each one takes a lot of uh, care and thought in terms of a very rigorous and logical approach. You know, everything is measured, documented, and investigated very specifically, right? Yes. So do you find that very different from a normal kitchen? And did it uh, sort of create any uh, challenge for you from a creative standpoint? No, you know, it was easier to, to, to transition into this type of kitchen than oh, if wow. you had to do it the other way around. Um, mostly because if you're in a production environment, you don't have a lot of time to test stuff out, you know, I mean, it, 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 or the means, right? I mean, you, there's only so much food that can go to waste when you're trying to develop something uh, before it becomes too cost prohibitive. So uh, moving to here is, and realizing that you have the time and you have the space and the, the resources and the people to work on all those Test. like we we have in the kitchen it's i'm the head chef but i have two people that work in the kitchen and i have a food scientist and she has an assistant so basically my job is to coordinate the work between them um and you know you know collate all of the results and you know give everybody the projects that they need to work on and so forth um mm -hmm. so it's it's intended so that everything that we do here is is deliberate, right? Everything, all of the, the, the research that we do is, is has an intention. Sometimes we fail, but that's important too. There's learning, there's learning experiences in, in failure too. Um, but, you know, if we had to do what we do here in a restaurant environment, it just would be impossible. Uh, but, that, but that's why some restaurants, a handful granted, have started R&D, kitchens, right, which are basically separate. Like if you think of Noma, if you think of a fat duck, uh, if you think of the Mugarits in Spain, they all have uh, chefs that specifically work on developing new menu items. Um, and they, they're given the resources to do that and so forth so that they can free up the, the chefs from, from having to do that sort of work. So, But I would argue that that's the most fun part is developing. I mean, that's working in the kitchen i don't know if you've worked in the kitchen but it's absolutely miserable i mean I, there's there might be a handful of people that love it for maybe all the wrong reasons but it's hard work it's not i i i don't know i mean i enjoyed it when i was younger but there's not there's no not enough gold in the world to make me go back to working in a restaurant so right yeah i i haven't uh, for better or worse i haven't actually worked in professional uh, kitchen, but certainly that actually was one of the reasons or things that 
kind of prohibited me as much as I love food and, and, and the art of cooking. Oh, to your point, it's, it's a tough, tough job, very tough job, right? So Yeah, it is. And it's, it's generally not well paid. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it's, and it, there's a lot of environments and kitchens can be very dysfunctional. So there's, there's a very primitive sort of like, uh, environment where certain things are still allowed in kitchens that you would never see in a regular workplace. And so it's, you have to have a very thick skin, right? I mean, maybe things have changed, you know, currently with more awareness of that around that. But when I was coming through the ranks, it was just, I mean, it was like kindergarten all over again. You know, <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's uh, actually. I was reading in your, one of the interviews. You mentioned, you know, as a chef, I guess, as everyone else, but specifically in this industry, there's going to be pain along the way, right? So, you know, there's things that that basically separates you from the other people. Yeah, and you know, it, a lot of it has to be with has to do with your willingness, willing. Uh, if you're willing to make those sacrifices. Um, you know, how important is it to you to uh, become a successful chef? And if you're willing to compromise and, and take that uh, sometimes abuse, you will eventually, hopefully, get to a successful point in your career. But, you know, it's just, I don't know. I mean, if, if I would have to do it again, I don't I don't know if, if I would. If, I mean, because it, it's it's just, there's... It is a huge sacrifice, and it takes a toll on you. And so it's, um, it is a young man's game, for sure, absolutely. Right, right. Yeah, actually, I was uh, interviewing Chef uh, Tim Rovert from uh, from Hong Kong, uh, and uh, from Balong, and then he was saying, you know, obviously he's a younger person, so that's what he's saying. So at some point, you know, if he wants to have a family or something like that, he won't be able to. To your point exactly, it's a young man's game. It's literally his quote. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So it's to me, it's just always incredible when I see people my age or older still working in kitchens. I'm like, incredible. It's either incredible stamina or just you don't have an alternative. And I, I worked my way out of that. I didn't. I mean, it, it's it's not something that I desired to do again. Right. Right. Again, I guess I said young man, like I should be, I meant yeah. young person, I guess, nowadays. But uh, so, you know, going a little deeper in the modernist cuisine approach. So uh, obviously a lot of cooking, uh, a lot of baking has a lot of tradition and history that goes with it. You know, your your grandmother and, and everybody has their own, you know, little twist or little things that they do with what they cook. So all, obviously modernist series often goes against the these sort of traditions scientifically. Uh, and so how do you decide which things to look at, you know, much tradition or, or, or rules to uh, to investigate and improve upon? Well, a lot of it is based on, like, if, if, you, if you think about uh, certain uh, techniques in the kitchen or certain ways food is cooked, when you, when you have experience cooking, but also if you have mm -hmm. some experience with scientific knowledge and, and so forth, um, mm -hmm. there's ways of basically discerning whether something is, it is true or it, it might be a myth, right? So, um, and, and it has a lot to do with how well informed you are. For example, if we're talking about, um, like when we were writing our bread book, right? There were, there's, there's a lot of mythology around bread, uh, mostly because bread has been around mankind since 
you know, prehistory, right? I mean, we, there's, there's, they've found bread that is like 14,000 years old now, right? Um, <laughs> right. Which is bad news if you're like on the paleo diet, but anyway. Um, mm, well. Uh, it's, it, and, be, and before we understood what was happening, we thought it was just like, almost like sorcery, right? I mean, you, you mix water and flour and it starts to bubble, you know, one, once Louis Pasteur identified that that was yeast and other microorganisms, then it started to make more sense. But there were so many things that we were doing to it to make it work that it, it, it was borderline sorcery, right? <laughs> um, and so, like, one of the things that we heard was, like, people were passing down their sourdough starters from generation to generation and, or people saying, oh, my sourdough starter is 100 years old. Or, and so that, that, for example, that sets off an alarm to any scientist, right? It's like, mm -hmm. wait a minute. So if your sourdough starter is 100 years old, were the conditions the same for 100 years? That it, whatever microorganisms were in there have basically, it's been the same perpetuated generation over and over and over and over and over again for 100 years? Or more likely than not, the conditions have changed. That sourdough starter is not in the same spot where it was first created. The flour that it's made with is very different from its first flower. So it's it's something that we, we really took a close look at. Like, is this for real or is this BS? And so it turns out that it doesn't matter how old your sourdough starter is. It, it could right. be two weeks old or it could be 500 years old. Um, mm -hmm. It'll produce, they can both produce really good breads. Um, uh, and it really doesn't matter if your, you know, grandma held onto it from you know, the old country and she came to the new country with it, it's not the same thing anymore. There's nothing about mm -hmm. the original starter that is there anymore. And so, uh, why? Because microorganisms adapt. In fact, yeast and lactic acid bacteria are some of the most adaptable microorganisms that exist. They adapt to their environment because the environment mm -hmm. changes. And so, um, it changes like literally from where you are to the person living right. next door to you. I mean, that's, wow. if you gave them some of your sourdough starter within two weeks, that sourdough starter is going to change. Um, wow. And that has to do with microorganism adaptability. And so those sorts of things are important to understand. So that's, it's the long answer to your question. If something sounds like it's too like mythical and too implausible, it really, mm -hmm. it, it catches our attention, right? It, it gets our attention. And then we perform a series of experiments to see, um, whether we're right or we're wrong. Sometimes, you know, the, the traditional classic way is, is best. And if, it, if it's not broke, why fix it, right? Um, mm -hmm. But if it can be fixed, we're going to take a look at it for sure. So uh, there's a lot of that that we do. I, on my end, I've done a lot of work on like classic pastry stuff where, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's, there's definitely a better way to make pastry cream. There's definitely a better way to make patashu. I mean, and and it is and it a hundred percent has to do with understanding the science behind the ingredients, ingredient functionality, meaning how the ingredients work, um, and how they behave in order to obtain the best results. And so, um, you know that that's where our work comes in. But I'll tell you, it's very hard to convince people sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can show people facts. And I don't know in, if in Canada it's the same thing, but in the United States, people don't care about facts. Uh, they don't <laughs> care about science. It, and I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about the majority of people. 
Right. Um, right. And so you can show people facts and data and, but if they don't want to believe it, they're not going to believe it. I mean, it doesn't, there's this cognitive dissonance that occurs mm -hmm. when you're presented with something you don't want to believe in, that you convince yourself that it's not true. So, um, and one of those things, for example, and is that we, one of the things that we, we talk about in our book is that whole grains and whole wheat flour is not better for you. And, okay. and this, and we, we have all of this, these uh, scientific papers that were written about it and all this evidence and proof that, that basically supports our point of view. Nobody cares. People still want <laughs> to eat their whole wheat bread that may or may not be good. Uh, they're against mm. white bread because they think it's not as healthy as whole wheat bread. And so it, it, these, these are things that, you know, people have to decide themselves whether they want to embrace the knowledge or not. Right, but right. our job is to present it, and so uh, once you have that information, you can make the choice of, of whether you believe it or not. So, right, that's interesting. I mean, I was actually I started baking, you know, a little bit before the pandemic, and you know, actually last night I was trying to make a loaf, and it was not really going well <laughs> with the starter. But you know, to your point, you know, when I first started looking at uh, you know starters and sourdough and all this sort of stuff, there's the romantic notion of, oh, I'm going to bring, you know, a uh, uh, starter from like somewhere in Asia, because that's my background, right? Because the fruits taste different, but you know, to your point, right. doesn't make any difference, really. No, and, you know, ultimately, even if somebody in, uh, you know, where, where you got like somebody in Asia, they gave you your sourdough starter, it eventually, you, in order to replicate, you have to have the exact same conditions all the time. And that just doesn't happen. I mean, it, it's it's in, for that to happen, it would cost a lot of money um, to be able to replicate, uh, you know, your sourdough starter. So, um, you know, I, and and an important thing to understand about sourdough starters is that there's there are more there's more lactic acid bacteria in the sourdough starter than there is yeast, and in fact, a lot more. There's it's a hundred to one actually for every for every yeast cell there's a hundred lactic acid bacteria cells. So what really defines the character of your sourdough starter is the bacteria mix. And that's, that, that bacteria mix is what varies from place to place. And it changes from, right. you know, some are adapted to colder temperatures, some are adapted to warmer temperatures. And, um, and, and that's what's going to give character to your particular sourdough starter that nobody else will have, right? Yours, that's why they're so unique because sourdough starter where you are and one in San Francisco and one in Tokyo and one in Rome, they're all going to have their own, their own personalities. Right. Right. That's very interesting. Actually, I didn't know a lot of the, of the science behind it. Oh, it's really you know? Yeah. And I guess related to that, is there a particular thing or discovery or, or you know, exciting stuff that you found while working at the modernist cuisine? Like one particular thing that made you go, Oh wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Or, well, yes, uh, a very interesting thing that we discovered that that I'm I'm very I'm still excited about is that uh, there's something that happens when you're making bread. Uh, you mix your dough; it has yeast in it. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes you forget about it, right? Because it takes so long to ferment that you forget about it, and then you come back to it and it's overproofed. And an overproofed dough looks like a collapsed balloon, right? Um, if you think of what, what is happening when dough is fermenting is you have 
the yeast is consuming sugars and so is the lactic acid bacteria and so what what they expel after they consume those sugars is CO2, carbon dioxide. So that's mm -hmm. a gas, and that is a gas that inflates the bubbles inside your dome, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so if they produce too much of that, the bubbles get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a point where the bubble, the cell walls and the bubbles, they become too mm -hmm. weak, and so that's when the, the dough starts to collapse, right? It can't hold right. it anymore, and so it starts to degas. And so what do many people do? They just take the dough and throw it away. Uh, and then they either don't make bread ever again because, you know, it, it's such an investment of time uh, mm -hmm. or they make another batch, and, but that dough went to waste and all that time has gone to waste. Keep in mind mm -hmm. that the most expensive thing about making bread is not the ingredients, it's the time you spend on it because it takes a right, lot. Right. So mm -hmm. what we discovered is that you can actually take that overproof dough, that over-fermented dough, you can reshape it, you degas it, you shape it again, and you can proof it again, uh, oh. and it it ferments again. And basically, what you did was it's not necessarily that the the yeast cells have already expired. What has happened is that they're starting to run out of food, um, and there's so much CO two in there that it's becoming a toxic environment for them. So when you degas right. it, what you're doing is you're you're getting all of that CO two out, all of that ethanol that's produced out of the dough. Um, you're re you're basically making those bubbles strong again because you basically reshaped the dough um, and you've provided new basically new food for the yeast to consume and the lactic acid bacteria to consume and so the dough will start to ferment again and what was really cool was a that I mean because it means you don't have to throw it away right mm -hmm. uh, but the other right. thing that we did is we we decided to test our luck and so we we overproofed the dough again Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, and then it works. And then again, and again, up until 10 times. We overproofed wow. one dough 10 times. And at the 10th time, we decided to stop because the dough was getting like really tough, very strong, but it baked okay. It still had the aromas of a, of a properly baked loaf of bread with a crunchy crust. Um, and it was really just to prove a point. Now, if you forget your dough, 10 times, you probably shouldn't be making bread <laughs> or you should get a timer or something. You need to change that. But, right. but that to me was right. very interesting to discover and to find out and to, to show people that, you know, whatever frustration might have come from overproofing your dough, it, it's fixable. Mm -hmm. It's something that you can fix. So. Mm -hmm. And so with that, just so I understand the whole process, did you actually add any water or flour or was it literally just reshaped? And that's Same it? dough, reshaped put back in its basket, proofed again. Oh, wow. For a total of 10 times. And so so it, it gives us a different understanding of how yeast behaves and how dough behaves and, and how much you can get away with it. It's such a resilient system that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it works better with commercial yeast, obviously, because commercial yeast is a, it's basically a concentrated form of the same yeast that exists in sourdough, right? So, when I talk about mm -hmm. commercial yeast, it's the yeast granules that you buy at the grocery store, right? Yep. It's, it's, a it's a strand of yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the mm -hmm. same stuff you find in your sourdough starter. It's the exact same strain. Just your sourdough starter, has it's a, they're not as plentiful and they're not as, as concentrated as, as when you buy the commercial yeast. So it's, it's the same thing. Some people are like, they think like, powdered like commercial yeast is like poison or like not good for you or right. it's not, that's bs that's, that's the same kind 
It's just one is purified, concentrated, and the other one is just, it's more, it's, it's less reliable because there's less of it. So, right. Um, right. It does produce so MSG and, and uh, sort of natural MSG and oh sure, but even purified MSG is not. There's no problem with using that. <laughs> I mean, that's. I mean, are we going to stop eating tomatoes? Are we going to stop eating you know Parmesan cheese? No, these <laughs> things are loaded with with MSG. So, um, but that's another thing too, right? People will still. I still buy like certain foods that say no MSG. I'm like, right? Like, why are we still pandering <laughs> to this? It's been. Over and over and over, it's been proven to be false, but we still mm -hmm. write these things on, on packaging. And so that, that really bothers me that people still believe that. So it makes food better. Right. I mean, it, yeah. it really is delicious. So. That's what makes it has that flavor. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, sort of along the same lines, you know, we're talking about uh, how. You know, you mentioned, you know, obviously you had a background in plated desserts and working restaurants. So um, is there any particular things that you see coming out, not just from pastries, but also general uh, culinary wise? What innovations do you see uh, from, you know, the, the food industry in general? You know, I, this is a, it's a it's a it's a very loaded question, mostly because you don't see a lot of innovation. What you see is one person does something that becomes viral, if you will, and then everybody else wants to do it. And so that's, that's the problem with creativity is that a lot of that creativity comes from having seen other people do other stuff, right? Right. And so, and I will, I will name, for example, somebody who I think is, is like a fantastic pastry chef is Cedric Berlain, right? In Paris. Um, and him. You know, he, he started doing these, these desserts that look like the fruit, right? Um, right, right? Now, he became very famous for that, although it, he wasn't the, the first person to do that. I mean, people have been doing that for centuries, but he became very fam famous for it, right? But then that's right. all you see now. You go to Instagram and everybody's trying to make the thing <laughs> that looks like something else. It's the trompe l'oeil, right? I mean, it's... it's mm -hmm. And so, you know, that to me is... is um, I mean, to me, the fun part about being in food is that I can create things, you know, sometimes you're going to make something really classic, but sometimes you're going to make something completely different. Um, and copying somebody to me, is just, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Especially if you know, right. If I see somebody make another lemon, I'm going to be like, I know exactly where that comes from. Like, how could you not know where <laughs> it comes from? Right. Um, and so I, I think that, that's part A of the question. Part B of the question is, well, now we're dealing with COVID. So I think that what we're, what we're going to start to see is the innovation is going to be in how we bring food to people safely um, mm -hmm. and how people are going to be taking that food from a restaurant to their homes. Right. I don't, okay. I don't have, I don't know when indoor dining is going to come back um, yeah. safely. Right. I haven't set foot in a restaurant since March. I have not. Right. I've every single meal except for one or two I've cooked at home. Um, so innovation is going to come in how we produce food and how we deliver that food. And I think there's going to be a lot of innovation within what would be like packaging and food delivery. Um, and I think we're going to start to get used to that. I think that we're going to start to get used to um, the possibility of some restaurants completely pivoting to that sort of 
system of we don't have dine-in, everything is delivery or takeout. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that could open up a lot of opportunities because it'll mean that you don't necessarily, as a chef, have to have a dining room with waiters. If you can, if you know how to deliver food well, and it's reheatable and it doesn't suffer very much in transit, I think that mm -hmm. we're going to start seeing some really good innovations when it comes to that, right? Um, right? I mean, I know a lot of people like to eat in restaurants and go out and be, you know, pampered, but a lot of people don't like to cook at home, right? And so if they can get a really good meal that they can eat in their home, just after they're done with dinner, they, they're at home and you don't have to drive, you don't have to, you can have all the wine you want, you don't have to get into a car, you know, and, <laughs> And you can just mm -hmm. literally brush your teeth and go to sleep. Um, yeah. So that I think that that's where you're going to start seeing innovation. Not necessarily in food itself. I think that uh, you know I, you're probably going to continue to see some trends towards you know smaller protein, bigger vegetables, which should be like that. And and I think that 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 is yeah, even if it's not a trend, it should be because animal protein really creates a lot of pollution, uh, meaning the production of poultry, beef, pork, um, it creates a huge carbon footprint. And so the less we consume of that, the better. If we eat more plants, it's also healthier. I'm not advocating for a vegetarian diet, although I respect it if, if that's what people want, but I do think that we should start to see smaller proteins. Um, and I would love to see it if, if we did consume, there's, there's many different kinds of of vegetables that we don't really are familiar with. There's a lot of fruit that is available that I think should start making its way to, to us because the problem we have, for example, with bananas is that there's a rumor that they're going to start becoming extinct soon because we've, we've bred this one banana type. Oh, wow. um, that is right. the, the type that you see in more so. And if, if there is some sort of um, pest that attacks that banana, there's not going to be any way to stop it. Um, and then what you did is like you bred for this one banana and then all the other types of bananas that are in the wild, they're not going to be able to, to keep up with the production that we've gotten used to with these particular bananas. So, um, and that's, that's what happened with the potato farm in, in Ireland, right? I mean, they, they were breeding this one potato and then this particular pest attacked the potato and all the potatoes were fucked, right? And so... So there's no potatoes, you know, because you've, you've bred for this one potato. And if you breed for this one banana or this one tomato, the same problem is going to happen. So, um, so there, there's many different um, fruits and vegetables that I think we should start normalizing and consuming. And we should start thinking about, like, you know, not all produce needs to be beautiful to be good, right? And there's so much food goes to waste and it's thrown out because it doesn't look perfect. And the truth is that perfect-looking food doesn't taste as good. It, it, it has a, um, you breed a, a peach to look beautiful. It's never mm -hmm. going to ripen properly. It's never going to taste good. Uh, it, it's, it's going to, it's not going to be like, the, you know, the uglier versions that are a little rougher and, you know, they, they, they ripen beautifully and they're delicious and they're juicy and that, that there's a big difference with that. Right. And so as, as, as much as identifying, uh, you know, trends is a little complex, um, and, and the, when I'm asked this question, I think, uh, typically I, I you know, people want to hear, oh, well people, you know, like there's going to be this form of plating or this new ingredient is coming to light. And I think it's, it's not as obvious 
innovations are never as obvious as that. Um, because if they were, they would catch on very quickly and they're not an innovation anymore, right? Uh, right. I think that innovation comes in more, I guess, discrete ways, uh, in ways that are not obvious. For example, what, what I tell you about packaging and food delivery, uh, right. food delivery systems, that's where innovation is gonna come. Um, and so at that point, does it matter? I mean, we, it does matter what it's gonna look like, right? Because you have to put it in a box. So you have to, as a chef, you have to get creative and making it look good. It's gonna get, right. it's gonna get from point A to point B. What if you were one of these restaurants that does what's called tweezer food, right? I mean, it, it, it won't matter when it's put in a box. So how do we change our perception of, of you know, something that has to be so precious on a plate but also make it look good in a box when it goes somewhere, right? I mean, those, that's where I think there's going to be a lot of innovation because, I mean, I, who knows when, a, when we're going to have a vaccine for this virus, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things that is going to create a lot of changes. I mean, you and I are having this conversation via Zoom. Um, of course. And so many people are doing that now. And so we've realized, you know, how many meetings don't have to be in person anymore, right? If we hadn't gone mm -hmm. through this, we wouldn't have known or we wouldn't have even tried right but because we were forced to now we have to do all these zoom meetings right and so there's with that is going to come changes also in in food we were forced to make these changes and we've adapted easily because we realized it's not a big deal we can do it right and so that that is going to change how many restaurants operate uh they might not even have a place that you can go to, right? I mean, it, it's it's mm -hmm. it's like a ghost kitchen, right? It's it's like a, <laughs> right? I mean, it, it might not even have a sign outside. It's just this is where food is produced and it's picked up and delivered. Period. That could save mm -hmm. you a lot of overhead uh, as a restaurant owner, right? So, right. Um, but anyway, that's a long answer to your question. Like I said, innovation is not always very obvious. It's not it's not in a thing. It's in a it could be in a process too. Right. That's that's a very good point, actually. To, I was actually thinking just randomly about how, you know, you go to obviously a high-end restaurant, you know, obviously the uh, corner restaurant's different, but you go to like, uh, you know, any Laguna Den, any, any you know, high-end restaurants, you know, how do they serve you? It's always, you know, it's it's very, very careful, very delicate. Right. How do you do that in a, in a delivery, you know, service? How do you translate that, right? Right. Right, and so the the creative chefs will be able to successfully do that, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefully. So, yeah, that's that's the hope, right? Right. We'll see what happens. Um, so, you know, moving along a little bit, it's where we're talking about, you know, the, the Modernist book series. So, uh, you know, obviously you're wrapping up, like you said, the Modernist pizza. So, what made you decide to work on this project? Um, you know, any, and also any sort of fun fact about pizza you can share with us as well? Uh, so pizza seemed to be uh, almost like a natural segue from bread because it's a fermented dough. Um, so it shares some similarities. And in fact, in our bread book, we have a section on pizza. But towards the end, we decided to shorten it because it was getting big. Uh, it was getting too big. So that's when we decided, well, <laughs> we might as well just write, give it its own book. Um, and so that was four years ago when we made that decision. Um, and so the, after that, we started to learn more and more about pizza. Um, mm -hmm. and we did a lot of travel for it. We went to Italy three times. We went to 
any city in the United States that has is a style of importance of pizza. Um, and also around the world, like uh, there's, we went to Buenos Aires, went to Sao Paulo, which they each have their own specific style of pizza, which is very interesting. It, it was important enough that we went to see it and learn it. Um, and it's in our book. Um, and so, and we went to Rome, obviously we went to Naples. We went to pretty much all of Italy where there's pizza. Um, we went. And so we also went to Paris um, because there's a big pizza culture in Paris as well. Went to Tokyo, uh, which is, you know, they're, they're fanatical about Neapolitan style pizza, but it's, it's interesting because it's kind of different from, from Neapolitan pizza in, um, in Italy. Uh, it's kind of different because it's a, the sauce is different. It's like more like crushed tomatoes. Um, there's a lot of olive oil that goes on top of it. Um, mm. There's, it, it's just, it's slightly different. Like it's different enough that we have Tokyo style Neapolitan pizza in our book. Right. Okay. So it, it has its own recipe. It has its own, uh, you know, instructions and so forth. It's all, it's also cooked in a very high temperature oven and so forth, but it's different enough that it has its own its own section. So, um, and just you know, pizza is is it was such a wonderful subject matter. I never would have thought I'd be that interested in. Um, mm -hmm. There is the technical skill that is required for it is pretty high, which is those are things that that interest me, right? Because if I think of something that's going to be challenging to do, it does it it gets my interest, right? Because you know, easy things are fine to do, but I think that the hard things are, you know, if you can master a craft, um, to me, it has immense value. And, and then transmitting that information for other people to, to accept that and to learn from it, that's, that to me is priceless. So, um, mm -hmm. so we're looking at, um, you know, we're, we're starting to wind down on it and hopefully it'll be out for sale next fall. So not this fall, next fall. Correct. So 2021. Yeah. Right. Oh, looks, I look forward to it for sure. It sounds very exciting. And then just to close, I guess, so you, so you mentioned, uh, you know, obviously one of those pizza, you guys are running it down and then you were going to work on the pastry book. And I, I actually have the element of, uh, of paste, uh, desserts oh, that you've written. It was amazing. Book. Obviously I don't have, uh, I don't have a lot of the tools like the right. spray painting stuff, but it's, it's very inspiring just to see what can be done. And so tell us about a little bit, uh, what the new book is going to be plan to be about I wish I knew mostly because um, <laughs> it, when you talk about pastry or when we talk about pastry it's it's it can mean anything from a chocolate chip cookie to a plate of dessert right and so everything between that is pastry so uh, we have to think about how we're going to categorize everything and the reason why it's overwhelming is because if if we gave every important subject matter it's due we're talking about 10 volumes Mm. I mean, just if we're talking about like frozen desserts, ice cream, that's its own volume mm -hmm. in and of itself. If we talk about chocolates yeah. and confections also, that's just one volume just for that. And so um, we have to decide how we're going to break it up uh, because it can't be a 10 volume book uh, for many reasons. So it's probably going to be two separate series, right? It, and I'm just guessing right now because, again, we haven't decided. Um, because we're trying to cover everything that is pastry, right? And so uh, if, if we want to teach people how to make croissants and we want to teach them how to make bonbons and how to make chocolate bars and how to make ice cream, 
So we have to do it in an organized fashion that makes sense. Um, so we're still in the deciding process of, you know, what goes where and where do we start? I mean, we don't, we don't even know where we're going to start. Right. I mean, and that's, mm-hmm. those are our big questions to ask. And so I've, I, I, I've scheduled meetings with Nathan, my boss, so that we can, you know, have these discussions. They don't always go, they're not always productive because again, we're, we're really thinking about deeply about how we're going to tackle this. Um, and, once we decide that, then we can get started. But until we don't know mm-hmm. where to start, I mean, there's, we really can can move forward. So I'm hoping we, before the end of the year, we'll be ready to start moving forward. At least beginning of the next year, hopefully we'll 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 have an outline. You know, we have the schematics of, of how to get started. So. Right, right, and I guess uh, probably my final question: uh, any particular things that make you feel uh, comforting or, or, you know, just feel at home in general, food wise, you know, in terms of could be dessert, could be savory dish, whatever comes to mind. Uh, well for me, I'll, I mean, for me, the perfect food is ice cream. It always has been ice cream. And I think it's, it, it's, it's, it, it's something that is, is, it's sweet enough, but it also, it, it's, it looks like more than what it is. So you feel like you're getting more, but if you melt it, it's like, like a spoonful, you know, like there's, it, it just it's satisfying in so many ways and you can there, there's just so many variations that you can do of it um so i think for me ice cream and mexican food it will always be like on my top list because there's so much variety there, like there's so many different um dishes that are mexican there's easy to very complicated to street food to you name it and there, there's there's so much of it that that always comforts me so um Mexican food and ice cream, I would say, is, is, is my top two there. All right. So that's like your, yeah. your if you're, you know, your final meal, that, that's your, your list. Right. <laughs> yeah. oh, cool. Uh, very nice. Uh, thanks again, Chef Migoya, for spending uh, your time with us and uh, learn a lot and, uh, you know, professionally and also just in terms of creativity and, uh, you know, hope to uh, speak to you soon again if we get the chance. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it was my pleasure. Great, thank you. All right, take care. Bye.